This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Last night, the Senate voted to move forward with the pot legalization. It's called Bill C-45. Canadians will be able to buy recreational marijuana by mid-September. The vote was rather decisive. Uh, It was actually sponsored. The bill was sponsored by Independent Senator Tony Dean, who sponsored this legalization bill, and this is what he had to say. Well, we have seen in the Senate tonight a historic vote that ends 90 years of prohibition of cannabis in this country, 90 years of needless criminalization, uh, 90 years of um, a just-say-no approach to drugs that hasn't worked. And uh, a number of different comments. There were two senators that abstained, but uh, it will be law, and uh, we're told now that it'll probably be sometime in September, mid-September, by the time that uh, everything is up and running. Join us to talk about this is Jordan Sinclair, Director of Communication and Media for uh, Canopy Growth Corporation. Uh, is uh, is this indeed a banner day for us, Jordan? Big banner day. Yeah, this is a banner day. And in some ways, it's something that uh, that we've been anticipating and preparing for. But it, it doesn't change the level of excitement for us at the company. Uh, it, it was uh, a lot of celebrations, a lot of calls back and forth last night. And now it's, it's down to business. We've just got uh, a few weeks left to prepare, you know, eight or 12 weeks, like you said. Uh, to get everything up and fine-tuned so that we can start making sales. You're right. I mean, there have been a couple of false starts on this. It went back to the Senate, back to the Commons, and we thought, well, these guys are going to kick this thing down the road forever. But uh, to, to their credit, I guess they got it done yesterday. I guess the overriding question right now, though, Jordan, is are we ready? So, uh, I mean, ready is, is a, it's a fluid word. I, I guess what I would say is, we're ready to go uh, to a degree where there's going to be products on the shelves and uh, there's going to be retail stores and there's going to be online e-commerce. I don't think that we're going to replace 100% of the black market in the first year. Uh, this is a process that's going to take time. You know, 90 years of prohibition creates quite a deeply entrenched market. But uh, we've been preparing, and uh, I think at least for us at Canopy, we're, uh, we're about as ready as we could have been. Well, let, let's talk about that, because there's so many facets to this, as you've already told us, uh, about product, about what's going to be available, where it's going to be available, who's going to be allowed to sell it. I mean, it's still a, somewhat of a contentious issue, I guess, here in Ontario, because we're undergoing a change of government here, and I'm not quite sure how the Premier designate and his staff are going to be looking at this. So at this point, I guess you guys need some clarity, don't you? Yeah, I think if uh, when the movie for this one comes out in, in 10 or 15 years, <laughs> it's almost you couldn't have scripted it any, any better with so many twists and turns. You know, Ontario, the biggest market uh, for us, the biggest province in the country, having, having to undergo a, a total change midstream because the election is, is exciting, uh, because hopefully it'll mean that, uh, that we'll get access to be able to operate our own stores. You know, we, we were really pushing hard to be able to have privately run retail and to run our own e-commerce the way that we're doing now in the medical market. So in that way, having Ford come in um, is a positive for our company, and, and we hope uh, that we'll be allowed to sell from the points of production. We've got a beautiful greenhouse in Niagara-on-the-Lake, and as people are touring around wine country, maybe they could stop and, uh, and pick up a little something different. Well, and, and therein lies one of the other concerns. I know there's a debate going on here in Hamilton right now about uh, whether or not uh, prime agricultural land should be used for this, and, and that's something city council is going to have to wrap their head around in the next little while. But, but the overriding concern, obviously, is, is, is location, 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 like everything else, because uh, mm-hmm. there was some concern, of course, with the previous provincial government here that this was going to be handled through LCBO outlets and, 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 and private stores were going to be shut down. They weren't going to be allowed to do this. Uh, which a lot of people were concerned about uh, because that usually would indicate that, well, the black market will continue to thrive then simply because it's a better availability. So this is kind of a blank slate now as far as as Ontario is concerned as to how we're going to move from here. In in some ways, yes, but there's been, you know, there's been policy options floated from uh, from Ford's camp. Uh, it looks like those original 40 stores that were announced will go ahead. Uh, and to the credit of, of the, the entire of the Ontario government and the LCBO, you know, they've put a lot of work into creating the, the model for those 40 stores. So I think that's that's the smart play. Uh, but maybe on top of those, we can layer some private retail and we can let the private sector participate in uh, in the distribution of the product. You know, for us, that would be that would be the dream outcome. Talk to us about because I'm I'm still getting a lot of inquiries that there seems to be a gray area for an awful lot of folks, Jordan, about the difference between recreational and medical marijuana and how that might be marketed. Today, very little. You know, today there's uh, 
The, I would say the black market didn't do a very good job of, uh, of doing clinical trials and doing drug innovation on cannabis. Um, you know, that's a little tongue in cheek, but, but really people are medicating today with the plant. Um, I think we can make it a lot more sophisticated. So, you know, we've, we've got to drive innovation. We've got to actually make formulations that look like medicine. Uh, but right now, the only difference is, is, you know, how the user benefits from it. So uh, the same strain that we sell as a medical product today, uh, can and will be available to recreational patients. And, and that's been going on for quite some time. I think we've brought a number of guests on our program over the last number of months to try to uh, inform people that uh, that actually the use of marijuana is for pain management is is a, a very much of an accepted uh, technology these days and being used more and more as opposed uh, to, to some of the prescription drugs, and especially in light of things like the opioid crisis and, and fentanyl and the possibility of addiction to some of those things. Uh, an awful lot of people that are dealing with pain management and chronic pain are looking to this as not just the alternative but the right way yeah at least for for a portion of the population yes yeah. uh, there's research that would suggest that one uh, doctors could prescribe cannabinoids instead of uh, opiates and that would that would reduce the number of people who are at risk of becoming addicted uh, and then there's other research that though it's not quite as sophisticated that suggests that really concentrated forms of of uh Cannabis products like uh, shatter, what they, what you would call shatter today, uh, can actually help to get people off of, a, of an addiction. So, yeah, we're, we're actually funding a huge study through the University of British Columbia to, to find some answers to exactly that. We just committed uh, $2.5 million to it. You know, I think a, a lot of people have been talking about potential solutions and you know, we've spent the last six months or so stepping up and making some, some major commitments. Do you think as a result of the fact that, that this country has moved forward on this and, and the prime minister uh, made this a campaign plank and said, look, it's going to happen during this first mandate, is, is it something that maybe helped uh, to, to move marijuana and some of their byproducts and some of the products that can be used to, uh, it more into the mainstream where people are starting to pay attention to it and say, hey, maybe that is an alternative to what we're doing? Well, yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess I would, this isn't going to be... In other words, it makes... It, I, I don't use... Yeah, it, it sounds like an overriding thing, but it kind of makes it legitimate. But I'm talking about from a philosophical standpoint, like, oh, I guess if the government says it's okay, I guess it's okay. Yeah, I think there's already a, a, a lot of Canadians, you know, 5 million have, have reported themselves that they use cannabis in the last year. So this is a substance that's already being used, just kind of being used uh, behind closed doors. I mean, maybe this will help with a little a little stigmatization uh, or destigmatization, but if I, if I could, I I just want to talk about the the political achievement um, yeah. and the policy achievement. You know, the um, the, the prime minister when he first announced this, uh, he was kind of pacing back and forth on a beach somewhere in Vancouver on the campaign trail. He looked unproven. He looked very young. This this seemed like it was a, a wacky idea, uh, and in a couple of years, it's turned into reality, and that took a lot. You know, it took a, a whole national dialogue from major stakeholders, from people like you know, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers, from the Canadian Medical Association, from, you know, every major stakeholder in the country is waiting on this. And the policymakers in Ottawa, people give bureaucrats a bad name. The, the mountains that they moved uh, to be able to create this into an actual policy framework is commendable. So, you know, for us today, um, yeah, if you can, go and hug a bureaucrat. <laughs> well, you know, it's to their credit, they they, they cut through a lot of the, the, the BS and some of the rhetoric and some of the myths that have been out mm-hmm. there. And, and you know as well as I do, when this discussion and this debate started in earnest at the federal level, Jordan, there were still an awful lot of people probably sitting in that chamber that, that every time you talked about marijuana use, they conjured up the image of Cheech and Chong and, you know, the big bongs and say, well, that's I don't want that going on around here. But uh, they've educated mm-hmm. they've educated themselves. They have educated themselves, I think some more than others. Uh, and, and the media has done an incredible job. You know, your show, uh, some of the other shows that are on this network have done a great job of having people on that talk about this, uh, you know, in a, in a pragmatic and an open-minded way. Um, I, I think that uh, the radio has been probably the best one, not to, you know, not to pump your tires too much. But, you know, there still is some work to do. When I watch, uh, when I watch the network news and, and they talk about legalization now, they're showing... Uh, you know, teenagers on Parliament Hill smoking joints that are the size of my arm. Now, I think that that is akin to frat party behavior uh, for alcohol. 
So I, I think we've got to we've got to shift a little bit more of the dialogue, and there's still some work to be done. But uh, it did it did really take a lot of people looking at something and and changing the worldview. So it's been it's been quite a ride. But that's where the process comes in, and 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 maybe that's one of the reasons why this thing got battered back and forth between the Senate and Parliament for so long because they wanted to quote unquote get it right. Uh, the, you know, they, they talked about the fact that this is going to be regulated. I mean, this is not just, hey, go and get your stuff and you want to, you know, do whatever you want, whenever you want. That's that's all well and good. We have had the discussion about how this is going to impact, uh, you know, driving, how this is going to be done in the workplace, if it's going to be done at all in the workplace and, and things of that nature. This is this is not just a, a knee-jerk reaction to say, hey, let's go ahead and legalize this and uh, we'll worry about the ramifications later. I think we've covered a lot of the bases. Covered a lot of the bases and, and just forced a lot of issues that were existing already in society to the forefront. You know, people were already smoking cannabis and driving. Uh, now we're now we're dealing with it in a real way. So there are challenges associated with that particular issue, and, and I don't think anyone would uh, would state otherwise. But this is something that's been happening. Like I said, you know, five, seven million Canadians are smoking. Um, instead of saying that this is the creation of a new problem, I think we're just identifying this as something that we have to start dealing with. Well, exactly. I mean, let's face it, alcohol has been legal for how many generations now? And there are people that abuse that. And I'm sure there are going to be people that are going to abuse pot too. And we'll try to, to do what we can to try to deal with those people that are abusing it. That's, that's, that's what we do as a society. But I, I like to think that we're over this idea that says, you know what, it could be a problem for a few people, so let's just kill the whole thing. That was the mindset for a whole long time here, and it sounds as if we got over that hurdle. And it, and it took so so long, you know. It took uh, decades of activism, and then you know another couple decades of drug policy researchers starting to take it more seriously and saying, no, you know, this this policy might have some legs to it. Maybe we should consider uh, decriminalizing or regulating or legalizing. And it, it went through that process of becoming sort of dinner party conversation. Uh, and now it's reality. So it, it's, it's incredible. I mean, I think all of Canada has, uh, has just crossed through a major threshold. Uh, and a lot of it is, is because of that open dialogue and, and, you know, that, that thoughtful approach. So it's, it's a hell of a day. The other element to this, too, is, I mean, we can pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, isn't this great? We're the first country to actually do this on a national level. Sure. But we're not inventing the wheel here. I mean, other jurisdictions uh, have done this, uh, and they they dealt with some of the fear-mongering that went on. And I'm not going to suggest that it rolled out without any hassles at all. I mean, nothing does. But they've proven, yeah. I think, uh, through the, the couple of years and a few years that some of the places in the United States, for instance, that have done this, that uh, this this is not Armageddon, this is not the end of the world, that this is just another element of our society uh, that people are going to use. Yeah, the trains are still running on time in Denver and in Seattle. Uh, you know, society doesn't collapse just because of legalization. Uh, I think the advantage that we have in Canada is, you know, with the federal framework, we get to choose what our role is going to be on the global stage uh, because this is something that can have an incredible amount of, of economic economic benefit if uh, if we put some investment into the industry itself. So I think that, uh, you know, when, when we think about the production side of things, Canada has a clear lead and, and most international stakeholders would agree. But on the medical research side, I think that uh, that lead goes to Israel. On the plant research side, I think there's just some exciting things happening in Australia. So now, you know, that that the law is done uh, and we're, we're going to start pursuing this in, in earnest, it's up to us to decide what we're going to do with this internationally. If, if Canada is going to be, you know, a center of excellence for all things cannabis, from medical to recreational to you know, the, the study into the, you know, any harms or impacts that it does have on society so that we can really define uh, the scope of, of how this plant interacts with people. And, you know, there's, there's an incredible amount of work to be done, even though it feels like we've been working so hard, I can't believe it. Uh, there still is years and years and years of exciting stuff ahead of us. But isn't it, uh, I think it's a very positive thing. You just talked about a lot of the research that's going on right now, Jordan. Uh, there were studies that used to be done about this, but they usually, that was like, okay, we want to conclude here that this is lousy and we don't want to do it, so let's do a study to val validate that. Now, this is main, <laughs> it's mainstream now. It's mainstream. People yeah. are saying, what else can we do with this? This is, this is, this is pretty good stuff. This is, there's a yeah. lot we can do here medically and, and otherwise. Well, I don't want to give anyone any free marketing, but there was a uh, 
there, there's a chocolate bar company that just came out with a 425 bar um, to be able to deal with a little bit of your hunger. And, and this is a major, major company that's putting it out. So I think at that point, it's mainstream. Uh, there, there is, you know, the, the shark has been jumped on all those poorly designed studies that started with a conclusion and worked backwards. Uh, and there's much more credible evidence out there and much more credible studies that have been done that prove the exact opposite. But uh, it, you can't just put everything in the category of, you know, drugs with air quotes around it uh, and that they're all bad. You know, there's, there's a spectrum of harm that comes from anything that you put into your body and cannabis exists well, I, on the, the very lowest end. As they say in the newscast, more to come on this. Jordan, thanks so much for this more today. To Appreciate it. All right, thanks. Jordan Sinclair, Director of Communication and Media with uh, Canopy Growth Corporation. As uh, we roll out uh, the legalization of marijuana, which will probably come into play, as we mentioned, about mid-September. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The uh, travesty uh, of what's happening on the U.S. border continues uh, with a number of different uh, world leaders, including the Pope, who is now uh, condemning this action and saying that there's uh, inhumane treatment of uh, children uh, done by the U.S. government, uh, by the Trump government, really has to come to an end. Even uh, Republicans, not all of them, but uh, some Republican congressional leaders are now calling for an end to this, uh, almost in a bipartisan way, although Mitch McConnell, the Senate leader, still remains silent on this issue, which is rather bothersome. Uh, and then a revelation yesterday about uh, uh, what would they called tender age shelters in South Texas, which is really a, a classic example of wordsmithing. I mean, it's... Uh, they're basically saying these are these are jails for babies, for toddlers, but they call them tender age shelters, as if that's supposed to couch the impact of, of the way we should and probably most of us are feeling about this. Notwithstanding the pushback on this and the outrage from so many people, uh, Donald Trump remains adamant. we got to stop separation of the families, but politically correct or not, we have a country that needs security, that needs safety, that has to be protected. Yeah, and of course the base applaud that. Uh, others, though, with the hearts and souls and minds, of course, are starting to, to, to increase the outrage on this. And, and they still have not answered the question, of course, what threat to the United States these children actually pose. Joining us to talk about this is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. I was watching a, a foreign correspondent from uh, NBC who I guess actually uh, was brought back from London. He was a European and London correspondent uh, and covering a number of things. And he was commenting on this last night. He was down in Brownsville, Texas, where one of these is located. And and his comment was, he says, I've seen this in, in my in my reporting of, of Europe, and it's in, it was in places like Syria and third world countries where, you know, tin pod dictators were doing this. Never in my wildest dreams did I think this would be happening in the United States. That's a sentiment that a lot of people are sharing now. It's a good place to start, not, to, not only because of the content, as you just described it, but to take a global view for a moment. What's going on is a massive movement of people and a massive uh, reaction to it. The situation in the U.S. is something, of course, we'll talk in more detail about. But let's keep in mind that people on the move, and we're just getting the figures today, actually, and yesterday from uh, the UNHCR, saying that uh, 68.5 million people are on the move. Half of them are children. And we know that the politics of area after area, of course, Syria being uh, the major no number one outflow and unsettling the Middle East, but also... We know that Brexit was much, uh, much about migration, and mm -hmm. that the whole future of the EU is up in, up in the air now over migration issues. So, what we're seeing, I think, is uh, a lot of working out of the details of a world that has created a situation, a multiple situation. On one hand, we have low birth rates in Western industrialized countries, and high birth rates elsewhere. That's going to lead movement, but also. The dislocations caused by, by war, by poverty, and by uh, the environment, all of that is leading to multiple crises, and we're seeing one form of it in domestic American politics. Which I think is part of the frustration, I mean, and, and I'm not suggesting there's any justification for this kind of movement or this kind of, uh, of, of treatment of, of people that are seeking asylum, but you know, a war in Syria that is destructive and where cities are being blown up is, is quite different. Uh, from what's happening at the U.S.-Texas border right now, where, where people are seeking asylum for a variety of reasons, 
Uh, there's no war going on right now, but they, they are being detained and nonetheless uh, uh, it, it separated from their families. And, and I think that's what's causing an awful lot of the angst. Yes, we, we can go into a lot of the analytics about oh, the midterm elections and American domestic. We must start, as, as in fact you and I have done over and over again, talking about Syria and the region in the past, we have to remember the human cost on the ground, and that this is really ultimately about parents being separated from children and children being torn away from their parents and sent to who knows where, and the parents don't know where, the trauma involved. So all of this human dimension should not be overlooked. It is the cause, of course, of a lot of the angst. You opened up by commenting that the Pope has weighed in on this. Uh, Theresa May has said this isn't the, the U.K. wouldn't behave this way and so forth. So... People are suffering, and uh, we can then move on to, well, what does this all mean for American politics? One of the things, I guess, that bothers us about this, I, we understand there are policies, and, and as you mentioned off the top, Elliot, the, the influx of, of refugees and, and those seeking asylum uh, is not unique to what's happening on the, on the Texas border right now. It's happening in Europe to a great extent, and, and it is causing some problems, and, and, and a number of countries are having problems trying to exactly to, to know what to do with this and to develop policies for this. Uh, and, and we get that. But that, that doesn't seem to be the, the, the level that Trump is looking at this now because he has stated more than once now that, first of all, this is not really, in his mind, this is not really about the influx and the impact it may have on the economy. He's basically using these children as, as leverage uh, in the Congress to try to get them to give them money to build his wall. So, I mean, this is really... Uh, a blackmail attempt by the president, uh, in many people's minds, uh, to simply you know get get what he wanted so he can fulfill a campaign promise that he made to his base. Yes, uh, using children as 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 leverage and uh, family trauma as leverage. I think we should uh, keep in mind a few things. First of all, the overall guidelines to watch American politics right now are twofold. One is uh, feed the base. So everything you see coming out of Washington and some things you better watch for that don't, don't jump out at you, uh, change of regulations on the EPA and so forth, has a lot to do with feeding the base, and that has to do with both the midterms but also uh, all, all of the politics. And the second, from the Trump point of view, is, is um, muddy up Mueller. So that these two things, the investigation against him, which is proceeding, and the the need to uh, shore up the base for electoral purposes guideline is a guideline for watching American politics. That certainly plays into this. Immigration is a centerpiece of the Trump appeal to America. There's people out there who are pouring in, so it's us against them. It's uh, uh, white people are going to become a minority. We have to. Have you seen the language on this? He's saying the Democrats want to. I have these people pour across the border, infest America, infest America, creating a, a stark vision of what uh, newcomers are compared to the uh, established uh, uh, population. So we have a situation here. This is fulfilling a campaign theme that has worked brilliantly for Trump in the past. He continues to use it now. It's a great distractor from other things. It's dividing America. It works to his advantage, he thinks. And now we have to get to the point, well, you know, wait a minute. The evangelicals are splitting from him. The Republican Party is splitting from him. Will this work uh, to feed the base? The, on that element, and that's, that's an interesting perspective on this when you look at it from the political uh, prism, uh, Elliot, because, you know, while Trump was doing that and probably alienating an awful lot of people in America during the presidential run, those that were frustrated and, 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 and reviled by some of his activities and some of his comments basically looked at the alternative and said, I, I, I'm not comfortable with that either. And, and a lot of them may have stayed home, but that's not going to be the case in midterms because it's not really Donald Trump that's going to be up for election. Amen. His policies are certainly going to be a factor. But but when they're voting for congressional seats, they may well start to say, well, how did you react to this and what did you do? Right. Uh, and, and that could turn the tide. In other words, uh, there is no Hillary Clinton who's a factor in this. It's going to be Trump and Trump alone. Yes, and keep in mind the entire House of Representatives is up for, for election and a third of the Senate uh, in November. So a lot of what we see right now has to do with I think diverting attention from the Mueller investigation and the other legal woes of the president and some of the actions of his cabinet on deregulation and environment, a lot of 
special interest pleading, so it diverts attention, but it also sets up the possibility that the Republicans will retain the House, not lose it. Remember, there's a 23-vote split there. Mm -hmm. And it's in the House where impeachment proceedings get drawn up. So this is uh, critically important to the actual fate of the president and the Senate. Uh, There's a very narrow gap now. The, The math favors the Republicans. But if the Democrats took both, in part because of what we see in front of us, then impeachment and conviction becomes a possibility. It, it's it's fascinating to watch, as you say, the wordsmithing that's going on here. I mean, for, we talked about tender age shelters, which is supposed to, I guess, uh, you know, it, uh, immu- make us immune from the idea that what we're doing is we're incarcerating babies and kids and toddlers. Uh, but and, and the law, they say, well, that's the law. And I, you've seen that happen with more and more people that are standing up here, Texas Board of Security and others from ICE that are saying, well, it's the law. They're breaking the law, so we, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. Uh, by law, child migrants traveling alone must be sent to facilities run by U.S. Departments of Health and Law. That, now, that law has been in place for some time. But these children are not alone, Elliot. They are with their parents. The government is taking them away and making them uh, by themselves and making them alone. So, in other words, they're creating that circumstance and then using that circumstance as justification for their action. Yes. There is... Uh the, if you watch the cable news and read the newspapers and so forth, as you know I do, I'm a junkie, um, there's a lot of commentary here. How many lies did Donald Trump say in the last uh, single press conference he, or speech that he gave? And there's a lot of misinformation apparently uh, being spread. Uh, the, but it's a stark situation here for Trump supporters and the Republican Party, which has trafficked in this long before Donald Trump, creating a sense of us against them and rally around us to protect ourselves, protect your own children, protect your own neighbors, protect your neighborhood against these criminals that the Democrats want to let in. That's his current line. It's all bogus. But uh, it's a very effective wedge issue. If this turns out to be a crystallizing issue for the midterm elections and for the future of the administration, well, Uh, That changes the situation. But, you know, we've been saying, not we, but the press has been saying this over and over and over again from the day Donald Trump announced. This is the crystallizing moment. This will be the turning point. There's a point of no return for Trump. And he overcomes every single one of those and goes on to victory. And he has, uh, you know, let's talk about the evangelical split. Well, yes, they may now be demurring, but will they vote against him? No. Or will they show up? And that's the key thing in all elections. Elections are won by people who show up to vote. So who's getting mobilized? Uh, who's going to show up? How will this uh, affect America's politics going forward? But as you mentioned, one of the reasons and one of the ways in which he, he tries to, to move from one crisis to another is, is the art of deflection. Yep. I mean, it was only a week ago that he was, he was patting himself on the back for his North Korean trip, uh, for basically you know, getting North Korea to agree to demilitarize and get rid of all their uh, denuclearize. Their, their, now, we know that wasn't really part of the deal, and Kim has already backtracked on a lot of that. So Trump's just kind of, okay, I'm turning the page, and now it's going to be this. And next week, who knows? It was, you know, it was trade in there as well, and he made a speech yesterday uh, to an American business group where he took a few pot shots at Canada once again. Uh, this is somebody you said this is like akin to a monkey with a shotgun. You're just firing it off, and you don't know where where it's going to go and and who he's going to hit. But it works for him. Uh, this is uh, people underestimate uh, his capacity to to be a, uh, an electoral winner. Uh, when he first announced it wasn't going to happen, he can't get the nomination. If he gets the nomination, he can't get elected. Now he's there, and he certainly can't get reelected. He can't carry the house, etc. But the capacity to uh, consider key electoral votes matter, and he can turn those out. Apparently, the question now is on this issue. Apart from the humanity of it, is will this be a crystallizing moment in in American politics? And it's not at all clear to me it will be. Let's, there's another uh, side issue to this. The remember I suggested feed the base, and that's what we're seeing in mm-hmm. front of us. But there's also muddy up Mueller. So the Mueller investigation, which is potentially a mortal threat to the presidency, uh, is going on. You could look at it this way, Bill. You can have some fun with this. Um, The person doing the announcing of 
this policy is the Attorney General of the United States. Yep. The Attorney General of the United States can now be made to carry the can. If it turns out this is going to be a costly thing for the Republicans, it's not going to be a winner but a loser, well, you've got the perfect scapegoat. You can fire the Attorney General over this issue, then that's the person who was in charge of the Mueller investigation. You can put in some, well, he had to recuse himself, as you know, and uh, his deputies in charge. But you can set in motion a whole train of events about the Mueller investigation fusing these two issues. And you're absolutely right. And there may well be somebody sitting in the White House right now that's that's developing and plotting that strategy. I mean, Trump is tr- trying to dump Jeff Sessions for over a year now. Yes. Uh, but he always there was going to be this concern, well, if he fires him, it's simply going to be because he figures that Mueller's getting too close uh, to, to the truth, and, and this is just a way of covering up. But if he takes a different issue like this, right. you're absolutely right. You're going to say, yeah, you know, you're the fall guy for this. Uh, it was all be. Jeff Sessions' fault. He's the guy that made that speech and quoted the Bible. Uh, and, you know, we just took him at his word that this was the right thing to do. Well, and Republicans, have, and the elected Republicans in Congress, and particularly the Senate, said, uh, you can't fire Sessions. He, he, he was one of us. And you can't, we're not going to confirm anybody to replace him, so don't fire him. Well, now that's removed. If this becomes a, a, a big issue for the Republicans and a, an electoral loser, they, that... Uh, that protection for him goes away. you got to wonder, though, Elliot, and again, from the political standpoint, I know there's a human element to this, and we've talked about that, and I'm not trying to be dismissive of it, but with the midterms coming up, it's a very important midterms, political strategy does play a key role in this. Uh, how do you develop an exit strategy for this? Is, is it to find a fall guy? Because Trump's never going to say, I'm sorry. He's never going to say it was wrong. The pressure tactic is on Congress to come up with some fix. He could, as it's been pointed out repeatedly, he could fix this because, you know, it's, it, it's a new policy and he can just pick up the phone and say, knock it off and change. And Ivanka can come out and say, my dad has done wonderful things for, for children and mothers. There's a lot of comment, where is she and all this? But uh, if he chooses not to do that, and that's his current course, he's saying, okay, Congress, you fix it. And as you pointed out earlier, part of the fix is, I'm not going to relent on that until you give me money for my wall. And, uh, but we want overall immigration reform. And let's, let's uh, stand back uh, one step from the current situation. America needs an immigration reform. Uh, it's needed it for years and years. This current situation, America does face a lot of genuine issues over massive attempts to enter America, uh, which has been going on for a long time, and a lot of illegal migration, and a lot of that has to do with a job market that America won't acknowledge publicly. There's a job need, and there's a <laughs> demand. So, uh, so there's a, a possibility here that the exit strategy is to get Congress to do something uh, that would make the president uh, say, okay, I've, I've won, I can back off. Let's talk about another dimension of this. If you're serious about the situation, serious about immigration issues, then you do uh, some analysis of why people are leaving where they're leaving. A lot of the people at the border now have legitimate claims to asylum, and they're being delayed to the point where they're being, their families are being separated. They're, these are not illegal alien uh, immigrants uh, that being talked about. These are people who have legitimate claim. What's going on in Central America? A lot of that has to be looked at as a governance issue. A lot of that has to do with America's demand for, for um, illegal drugs, which then creates crime syndicates. The, the cause of the movement of people and the remedies for it don't lie at the border separating uh, families like we see in front of us. Elliot, always great to have you on the program and uh, to get your perspective on this. As I say, it's ever-changing, so I know we'll be talking again about this soon. Thanks for this today, though. Uh, certainly, Bill. Take care. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Premier designate Doug Ford met with his caucus uh, at Queen's Park uh, to a raucous applause, of course, as you might expect. They're pretty happy, right? Big victory for them. Uh, he does not get sworn in, nor will, the, obviously, the rest of his caucus till the 29th of this month. But he's already made some policy announcements. Uh, Mr. Ford already indicated, of course, that he's going to immediately uh, enact on his uh, promise to drop the price of gasoline by 10 cents by eliminating the uh, provincial, part of the provincial tax on that, the uh, HST. 
Uh, and he's telling uh, the gas companies, by the way, that they must pass that on to consumers. I don't think he's got any legal right or any law that makes him able to do that, but that's the, that's what he's saying. But what raised even more eyebrows was an announcement yesterday that uh, Doug Ford has quietly axed the Green Ontario Fund, uh, which was a fund that was set up, by, yes, by the Wynn government uh, some time ago right now. And uh, it basically offered rebates and incentives uh, for you, me, uh, to do things around our house, uh, for residential things like solar windows, insulation rebates, uh, you know, energy efficiency, this sort of thing, to reduce our, our bills uh, and make us all more energy efficient. And now, uh, Doug Ford says the program is now gone. It's done. Uh, it's uh, already on the webpage right now. It says the following programs are closed. Uh, listing, and there's a whole long list of them here. Some of the things I just mentioned here, residential solar window and insulation rebates, uh, smart thermostats, things of that nature, gone. Not going to be there anymore. Uh, and it's got some environmentalist concern. that uh, This may well be the tone set for uh, the environment policies of the incoming government. Joining us to talk about this is Parker Glant, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. Parker, thanks for the time. Good to have you with us again today. It's good to be back, Bill. Uh, kind of a surprise. Did this catch you off guard? Uh, not really, because uh, it's funded by the cap and trade, and of course he's announced, he's, and, and I think you've alluded to this earlier in your program, that he's uh, canceling the cap and trade and he's going to fight, fight uh, the federal government on that issue. Um, but the when the program was announced, I think it was late uh, of last year, December of last year, uh, Wind government basically said they were throwing in $1.7 billion over three years, which is about $550 million a year, to uh, provide these uh, services that you've just listed, I mean the rebates that you've just listed. Uh, so it's fairly substantial. But we already have quite a substantial uh, conservation program in place, w- which is accessible as well, which is you know what IESO, the Independent Electricity System Operator, manages. And that's about... $430 million a year as well. So, uh, you know, I don't, you know, there there was a lot of money. There's a billion dollars a year basically directed towards, you know, giving us LED bulbs, helping us insulate our house and, and uh, buy heat pumps and all that stuff. So it's there already. Uh, well, it's, it's maybe now under the other side of the ledger now, under that $6 billion in quote-unquote efficiencies he was trying to find. Yeah, well, uh, this one, uh, as I said, this entirely was entirely related to the cap and trade. And yeah. The wind government, when they announced it officially, and I think the feds came in and gave through some money our way as well, a province, uh, about $100 million at the time, um, said that, uh, you know, this was being fully supported by the cap and trade, and it was $1.7 billion over three years. Uh, uh, so that makes you know 550 million per year from it, and as I said, the other 430 million or so from my ESO puts it over, puts it around the billion dollar mark per year that is being thrown at, at conservation issues, and they go right through. I mean, it's you know the cost uh, of our, our energy has risen so much that uh, the effects are. Are being, you know, are felt at hospitals, at, at uh, schools, and everywhere else. Uh, so, uh, you know, they schools now can schools and universities and hospitals can now access these funds as well to reduce costs. And up to now, they've been, you know, uh, basically supported by ratepayers to a great extent. Certainly, the IESO fund is, and uh, this particular one is is presumably financed, you know, through the cap and trade. So, you know, collecting the money from from us uh, when we fill up our gas tanks, that sort of stuff. But how effective was the program? I mean, if, if the intended goal here was to make us more energy efficient and to reduce uh, not just consumption, but, of course, the cost of that, I mean, that those were the stated goals, and they, uh, they're very laudable goals, certainly. But was the program in effect long enough uh, for, for us to get a, any a kind of read, Parker, as to whether or not it was actually doing what it was intended to do? I don't know. It wasn't. Uh, I mean, the other programs they've had going for some time, I mean, I always go back to, you know, supply and demand. I mean, if your price goes up enough, you're going to reduce your consumption, right? Uh, you know, it's a, uh, you know, bad effect. I mean, if if you're paying a lot for something, you're going to find a way to reduce 
your use of that uh, that item that keeps you know uh, taking money out of your pocketbook. So we've done a laudable job, I think, at reducing our consumption if if we can believe the reports that come from IESO, because we've gone from you know consuming over 150 terawatt hours per annum. Um, I think it was 157 one year uh, back when they, uh, this all started back in 2004. And uh, we're now down. Last year, we only consumed 132 terawatt hours, yet our population has probably increased by over a million people. So, you know, logically, the increase in population would result in an increase in, in consumption, but it hasn't gone that way. It's gone the opposite way. It's dropped considerably. What, what's the future of alternative fuels and alternative energy sources uh, under this administration? And I, I know we're speculating at this point because, I mean, they, they, aside from this, there hasn't really been a whole lot of uh, announcements. But there's, there's some indications of that Mr. Ford clearly wants to, to do some things differently. I mean, I, I can remember, I think it was the first leaders debate when he's still running for the leadership of the party. When Tanya Granick Allen suggested that if she became the leader, she was going to tear out all the wind uh, turbines from around here, and and Ford piped in and said, "That's a great idea. We should we should do that." Uh, and it was Christine Elliott that said, "Do you guys understand the legal ramifications of that? Whether or not it's the smart thing to do, it would cost us billions and billions of dollars." So I, I I'm hoping that council is going to come to his eyes, but clearly. Uh, let me put it this way. It's pretty obvious that Mr. Ford doesn't have the same zeal for some of these policies that Kathleen Wynne did. No, I, I totally agree with you. And, and there's been some you know, uh, scientists and professors that have said the same thing. They've basically supported them. I was reading Ross McKittrick's uh, article, Professor McKittrick's article today in, in the uh, Financial Post. And he has a lot to say about whether or not we really are experiencing climate change to the to the degree that has been expressed by a lot of these environmentalists. Um, And uh, so, I mean, putting that issue aside, I think ripping out turbines is, yeah, it's going to be costly because, you know, those people have invested a lot of money into putting them up. Uh, And I was just looking at uh, white pines. I'm in Prince Edward County, and we're supposed to get, you know, 18... 0.4 0.4 megawatts of wind turbines, which was cut down from 60 uh, through, you know, the environmental review uh, uh, tribunal process. And um, those, I just looked at, you know, I was just sort of running some, some numbers, that, and uh, I figure that over the 20-year term, uh, they will earn about $130 million in gross revenue, which is not too bad. They're total investment will be about $30 million in the turbines that are going up at, at, at the maximum level. So they're going to get you know repaid uh, within four and a half years, and all the rest from that point forward is gravy as far as they're concerned because they're getting you know, 13.5 cents a kilowatt hour for whatever they produce. And if they're told not to produce any power because we don't need it, you know, um, then they're going to get paid twelve cents a kilowatt hour, and that to me seems ridiculous. Like uh, there have been a lot of critics saying that, you know, when they brought the renewable energy fit program in, it was way overpriced. And you know, the people that have been pointing these things out have been people like the Auditor General who yeah. said we we overpaid by billions of dollars, uh, and you know there was no cost benefit study done. And we probably overpaid on the contracts. I mean, we all know that. I mean, that's, uh, you know, there's hard and fast evidence uh, and numbers to prove all of this. Yep. But but going forward right now, it's it's hard to, as you mentioned, Parker, it's, it's going to be very difficult for this government or any government, really, whether it's Doug Ford or anybody else, to try to, to turn the ship around here. I mean, you know, we've set a course here, and it's been a costly course. And and as as I think a lot of folks have indicated, it's going to be very costly to try to turn things around. But if, in fact, they want to do that, the obvious question is, what direction are you going in here? I mean, are we going back to the way things were before, uh, where there wasn't a whole lot of investment in, in, in alternative sources? Do we not believe in alternative sources of energy anymore? Um, and, 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 you know, and there are a lot of subset questions to this. You know, Do, do these rebate programs really incentivize uh, people like you and me to actually go ahead and do these sorts of things? Or are we just going to forget about it now? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, some of the things that we're talking about here, like, I think there's a, an allocation for, you know, replacing your windows. 
Well, I don't know. You know, I, it's been some time since uh, we replaced windows, but I can remember, uh, you know, when I had a house that had 2,400 square feet, and I think I spent close to $20,000 getting new windows, you know, that were more energy efficient at the time. And that was several years ago, probably eight or nine years ago. I don't know what it would cost now, but uh, my guess is it's it's gone up quite a bit. And, you know, $5,000 helps, but it sure as hell doesn't cover you know, uh, 50% of, of the total cost. Yeah, but it's 5000 more than nothing. Yeah, 5000 more than nothing, but it's coming out of our pockets in other ways because, you know, if I have if I drive a car, if I, uh, you know, I need, you know, for my business, I need to operate trucks and make deliveries, um, I'm going to be spending other money subsidizing those windows, you know, and is that right? And, and the generals, you know, it's it's like uh, the fourteen thousand dollars the government was offering for, you know, if you bought a Tesla, you know, paid one hundred and thirty thousand dollars for an automobile, they'll give you fourteen thousand dollars. Well, anybody that can afford to buy a car for one hundred and thirty thousand dollars should be able to afford that fourteen thousand. It shouldn't be coming out of the pockets of the little guy that can't afford to put his put new windows in his house to make it more energy efficient. But here's the concern I think a lot of people are facing right now, whether you believed in these programs or not, and whether you supported what the wind government was doing, and I think that was a very sh- that was a shrinking number over the last number of years. But but for Ford to come in here and say, look, at, I'm going to cut that program, I'm not going to do this, we're not going to invest in this anymore, I'm going to force uh, you know a reduction in the price of gasoline with the only thing you can really control there, which is you know the provincial portion of the HST, there's an expectation, well, that means our costs are going to go down. And that's what he kept promising, that if I do this, you're high, I mean, he's promised to lower hydro rates. He's promised to lower the price of gasoline. I, and boy, you know, if if I had a nickel for every time a politician's promised us they were going to do that, I'd be a wealthy guy, Parker, and I wouldn't need the rebates either. True. But it never happens. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I I just wrote a, a fairly recent little article that I posted on my, my own website, my own uh, blog, uh, and... But, uh, you know, I totaled up, and I, I think I came to $2 billion that could be saved from the energy sector alone by doing certain things. And, you know, one of them is, you know, uh, moving that, uh, canceling that conservation program because it's, it's, it's basically coming out of all of our pockets every time we get an electricity bill. And, you know, uh, a lot of it has been designated for for uh, companies that want to create, you know, more efficiency within their day-to-day operations, and that's admirable, but why should the little rate payer, you know, the residential rate payer be picking up those costs? The identification of where the money is going and where it comes from, if you will, hasn't been, you know, sort of, you know, put front and center so that people understand what's happening. And that's why our rates have gone up. Our rates have gone up because we've done a, a class, you know, they've created two classes of ratepayers, a class A and a class B. Well, the class B is residences and small businesses, and they are basically picking up uh, oh, well over a billion dollars every year to make sure we can give uh, large corporations industrial rates. So, I mean, there's a lot of this that has gone on, and, and a lot of that, you know, money, that class class A money was, oh, my God, we got to save jobs. We can't let General Motors or, you know, one of the big guys move out of the province and create uh, uh, job losses, right? But there's been a lot of that that has happened quietly. I mean, Heinz closed its, you know, its tomato uh, ketchup plant down in, in you know, Chatham, uh just as one example, I mean, thank God someone else moved in and, and took it over and is now making making uh, ketchup. But Which is, and that's the one we buy. We buy the French's. And, but yeah. you're right. There, there's not always somebody there to fill that void when that happens. No, not at all. I mean, and, you know, there's been a couple of announcements up here where, I mean, as I said, Prince Edward County, but, I mean, in the Belleville area, uh, there's been a couple of closures and um, you know, the, you know, when you lose a plant or a, an operation that has 150, 200 employees, that's a big hit to the local community. I mean, it takes away a tax base 
from the community and it takes away good employment that you know is spent locally that keeps the other little businesses going so uh, there's a lot of that that has happened over the past you know 14 years or 15 years you know who i i'm feeling sorry for right now because i don't know the details i don't think anybody does is, is a number of those startups, and, and you know, we just talked about the impact of, of rates, of, et cetera, on small business, and that's a legitimate uh, debate to have. But an awful lot of businesses started up as, as green energy businesses, and they were encouraged by the previous government. Some of them actually got some financial help to do so. Uh, they they got to be wondering today after this announcement if they're just left out in the cold right now. And they, like, they're, they've employed people. They've, they've invested money into this. And and now I'm I'm sure a lot of them are wondering, do I have a future here? Do these am I going to have to start laying people off just like some other small businesses? Yeah, well, uh, there is that element, but uh, you know I don't think we ever achieved the number of people that the government was forecasting were going to be employed because of renewable energy. But I you know I think the heating and air conditioning companies and and you know the people that do the house building and will will not suffer from this if people have more money in their pocket. Over a you know a longer period of time, they will you know eventually sort of say, yeah, we need new windows or we need more insulation or. Well, we're going to buy those regardless, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you right. know, every ten, fifteen years, you have to put new shingles on the roof. You have to you know talk about windows because of the leak that you get in the winter. And and let's face it, eventually that furnace dies, usually on the coldest day of the year. But it usually, does, so, yes, right. So you've got to do something about that. Yeah, no, that's so true. So I mean, uh, you know, as I said, I think they're. Like, and the other thing that happened last year is we basically wasted over 20% of our generation, 22% of our generation, like, spilling hydro, right? We spill a lot of, you know, water over dams because we can't run it through the generators because we don't need it at the time. Uh, we curtailed a lot of wind as well, which means we paid, you know, people for not producing and all those gas plants that we're building, including the one that was moved from Oakville to to Bath, Ontario, uh, which is still not open yet, so they're not getting paid yet, um, is going to impact us, right? I mean, and they're sitting idle. I mean, we, you know, we hardly used any of our gas plants um, last year to produce uh, generation, and uh, that that is a direct cost. And the reason we had to put those gas plants in is because wind and solar are intermittent. When the wind's not blowing, we need, you know, generation, particularly in the in the wintertime and in the summertime. We need, That's when we usually, usually have our peak demands. Well, so, I, I, I'm of the same mind. I mean, you know, when we go up north uh, to Shelburne, uh, up through, you know, to, to Blue Mountain through Shelburne, and I see these huge wind farms that have been established there in the last number of years, and then when they're sitting there idly, I'm thinking, Boy, there's money well spent. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Parker, uh, great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Lots more, I guess, as well, some of these new policies that. roll out, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in, in greater detail later. Okay. Talk to you soon. Okay. It's uh, Parker Glenn, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.